I want you to just sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the story. I'm going to use the entire class period, like the whole hour, to finish telling you the story of the Maccabees. We're done with all the theology. There's no study guide discussion or anything. There's there's one bit we skip in class uh, that I do highlight for you in the st- study guide. So if you haven't printed the study guide, go look at it. it I printed out for you the first place that we see a reference to the Jews praying for the dead who have sinned in the hopes it will aid them in the final resurrection. So that's like brand new theology. It's straight out of Second Maccabees. You know by now that Second Maccabees should be used to see how the theology of the Jews is evolving under cultural influence, um, but not as a reliable source for our own theological understanding. So um, I'm skipping that in class, just letting you know that we're seeing the beginnings of this whole, you know, resurrection theory and and that you can pray for the dead if they've sinned and things will get better for them. All of this stuff is starting to come into the culture here during this period. As we left things last week, Philip, the new guardian of young Antiochus V, Eupiter, is still away dealing with the situation in Persia following the death of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Lysias, who is regent over the entire Seleucid Empire, makes several forays into Palestine with Antiochus V, Eupiter in tow. They bring vast armies, complete with elephants, And with the help of the Idumeans and the Ammonites, they press the Maccabee forces hard. But the Jews have been faithful to trust God to defend them no matter what odds they're facing. And God has shown up every single time. The versions and timelines in 1st and 2nd Maccabees differ, but it is clear that when the Ammonites attack, the Maccabees successfully defeat them and kill their leader, Timothy. Then the Maccabees beat back Lysias' enormous army. Eventually, Lysias and Antiochus V return to Antioch. Of course, the fighting is not over by a long shot. The Maccabees turn southwards to battle the Idumeans, who are led by none other than our old friend, General Gorgias, who is now governor over all of Polysuria. During the fighting, one of the Jews grabs Gorgias's cloak, drags him off his horse, trying to take him alive. But one of the enemy soldiers cuts off the soldier's arm, and so Gorgias escapes. Judas charges the Idumean troops and puts them to flight. Well, Lysias and Antiochus V may have lost some battles, but they're not ready to admit defeat. They raise another huge army with more elephants and cavalry. Menelaus, who is still high priest in Jerusalem, eggs Lysias on, figuring this is the side his bread is buttered on. But frustrated by the repeated and humiliating defeats they've already experienced, Lysias tells Antiochus V that Menelaus is the reason this whole revolt started in the first place. So Antiochus V has Menelaus executed. Goodbye and good riddance. 
with a brand new army at his back, Antiochus V, in his arrogance, marches out to show those Jews that he is even tougher than his father, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. In alarm, Judas Maccabeus calls on all the people to pray day and night with weeping and fasting, lying prostrate for three days. And then he tells them to get up and get ready. Judas decides to march out to meet the vast armies before they arrive at Jerusalem. He exhorts his troops to fight bravely to the death and gives them the watchword, God's victory. Then, with a hand-picked force of the bravest of the young soldiers, he attacks the king's pavilion at night, killing 2,000 men in the camp and killing the lead elephant and its rider. In the midst of all this, Lysias and Antiochus V receive word that Philip, the man Antiochus IV appointed as regent over his son, has just arrived in Antioch from Persia. Philip is a definite threat to Lysias, so Lysias needs to wrap things up in Jerusalem and get back to Antioch pronto. Lysias cares a whole lot more about maintaining his regency over the entire Seleucid Empire than he does about quelling this Jewish revolt. As a result, it's suddenly over. In return for cessation of the revolt, the Jews are to have their temple restored to their control. They're to be allowed to live according to their own customs including eating their own food and having their own laws. Now, exactly when these concessions are made is a little fuzzy. Um, Second Maccabees includes the text of four letters concerning this peace treaty that are copied uh, into this part of Second Maccabees. Two of the letters are dated before the death of Antiochus IV, one is from his son, Antiochus V, to Lysias, affirming the terms of the agreement. And the fourth letter is from Rome, also approving the treaty negotiated with Lysias. So who knows which, if any of these letters is accurate, but it does appear that the Jews win back their rights around this time. Note, they haven't won independent rule. They're still subjects of the Seleucid king and the local governors of Qalaisaria, but they have won back their right to be Jews. When Lysias returns to Antioch, he finds that Philip has indeed seized the throne as he feared, but Lysias overpowers Philip and takes back the throne. It's now 161 BCE. As you know, Antiochus IV has died. His son, Antiochus V, who is a child, has ascended the throne. Lysias is regent over the entire Seleucid Empire on behalf of Antiochus V. But there's another player, Demetrius, the nephew of Antiochus IV, has been held in Rome as hostage all this time to ensure Seleucid compliance with that old treaty. His throne name is Demetrius I Soter. He escapes from Rome where he's been held hostage. He wrests the Seleucid throne from his cousin Antiochus V and Lysias, 
both of whom he puts to death. So now there's a new king in town named Demetrius. The story then refers to a man named Alcimus, who has apparently been high priest at some point. And according to the writer of 2 Maccabees, he had willfully polluted himself during that time. Now, we haven't run across a high priest by this name. The commentaries really were not very helpful on him, but I think it's possible that he may have been one of the Samaritan high priests who is looking to be reinstated to the more prestigious temple in Jerusalem. That That's just my guess. He goes to the new King Demetrius and gives him a golden crown, a palm, and some olive branches from the temple. But he doesn't press his case quite yet. Instead, he waits until he's invited by the king to a meeting of the council. And there he's asked about what's going on with those Jews. He tells the king that the Jews under Judas Maccabeus are stirring things up and refuse to let the region be peaceful. He tells the king he himself has given up his own high priesthood just so he can come and tell the king how concerned he is for the nation as a whole and for the king's interests. What a liar and a brown noser. He tells King Demetrius that as long as Judas Maccabeus lives, there can be no peace. The entire council jumps on this bandwagon and the king dispatches Nicanor, the general who commands his elephants, to go to Judea as governor, to install Alcimus as high priest, and to kill Judas Maccabeus and scatter his supporters. Now, when the Gentiles of Judea hear this news, they scramble to back Nicanor and Alcimus figuring anything bad for the Jews is good for them. But when the Jews hear the news, they immediately humble themselves with dust and pray to God and then prepare for battle again. Simon, Judas's brother, encounters Nicanor in a skirmish, but he's unable to actually stop him. Nevertheless, Nicanor knowing Judas's reputation and the reputation of all the Jewish fighters, realizes this campaign could end up being a bloodbath. So instead, he offers to negotiate peace with Judas. And so they make a treaty. I'm going to tell you the version in 2 Maccabees. It's a somewhat different version than the one in 1 Maccabees. According to the writer of 2 Maccabees, once the peace treaty is made, Nicanor and Judas end up bonding over all of this. And as time passes, the goodwill between them is such that Nicanor frequently consults Judas on matters of government and urges him to get married and settle down, which apparently Judas does. Alcimus, the high priest, is not at all happy with this turn of events. This is not what he wants to happen. He takes that peace treaty and 
carries it right back to Antioch, to King Demetrius, and tells him General Nicanor has betrayed him. And furthermore, that Nicanor plans to make Judas his successor as governor. The king writes to Nicanor in anger and commands him to send Judas to Antioch as prisoner. Well, Nicanor receives this message with great distress, but he knows he must hand Judas over. And he begins to distance himself from Judas personally. Judas notices this, of course, and knows something is up. So he goes into hiding. When Nicanor realizes Judas has escaped, his neck's on the line. You know that, right? He goes to the temple and demands that the priests hand Judas over. The priests swear they have no idea where Judas is. But Nicanor stretches out his right hand and swears, if you do not hand Judas over, I will tear this temple and its altar down and build a temple to Dionysus on this very spot. When Nicanor leaves, the priests pray to God on behalf of the temple. Now, Nicanor hears that Judas and his fighters are in Samaria somewhere, and he makes plans to attack them on the Sabbath. The renegade Jews, who have been forced into service in Nicanor's army, try to talk him out of this and try to get him to show respect for the living God who ordered the Sabbath. But Nicanor replies, I am sovereign as well here on earth, and I command you to take up arms. Judas, of course, remains faithful to God throughout all of this. He arms his men with spears and shields, but also with courage and faith in God. He tells them of a vision he's had. I saw Onias, the high priest, praying for all of us. And as he prayed, another dignified, gray-headed one appeared, full of majesty and authority. And Onias said, this is Jeremiah, the prophet of God, who loves Israel and prays always for the people and for Jerusalem. And then I saw Jeremiah stretch out his hand to me and give me a golden sword. And he said, take this holy sword given to you by God and strike down your enemies. Now that dramatic imagery sounds very second Maccabees, doesn't it? But the young soldiers are encouraged mightily by Judas's words. Judas lifts his hands and prays, O Lord, when King Hezekiah of Israel was threatened by Sennacherib the Assyrian, you sent your angel and 185,000 were killed in the enemy camp. Now, O Lord, send your angel ahead of us to spread terror and trembling. Strike our enemies down by the might of your arm. 
And just then, the trumpets of Nicanor's army sound and their battle songs fill the air. But Judas and his warriors meet them with fight in their hands and prayer in their hearts. And thus, the warriors of Israel are able to kill 35,000 of the enemy that day. As they return to camp, they find the body of Nicanor lying dead in full armor, and they give a great shout and thanks to the Lord. Judas orders that Nicanor's head be cut off and carried with them to Jerusalem. When they arrive, they go directly to the altar at the temple and show everyone Nicanor's head. And they show them his vain arm he had stretched out against them. Judas then cuts out Nicanor's tongue and says he'll feed it in pieces to the birds. Then he hangs Nicanor's head from the citadel so that all the people can see that the Lord has come to their aid. Judas realizes that the Romans are becoming very strong and they will destroy Palestine if the Jews don't form an alliance with them. He's also more than a little intrigued by their unique form of government in which no one is king. But instead, the Romans have like a senate that meets every day to govern the people and, and their leader is selected by this senate. So Judas sends envoys to Rome and asks the Romans to become allies and to stand with the Jews against any further oppression by Demetrius I Soter and the Seleucids. The letter he sends with them promises that the Jews will come to Rome's aid as well as to the aid of any of their allies, and that likewise, should the Jews be threatened, the Romans would come to the aid of the Jews. The Romans agree to these terms and write a letter to the Seleucid king, Demetrius I Soter, telling him that the Romans will defend the Jews on land and on sea. It's now about 160 BCE, and while all this letter writing and negotiating has been going on, King Demetrius has been concentrating on conquering the Jews. As far as I can tell, that Roman treaty doesn't actually come in time to do Judas any good at all. When King Demetrius hears that Nicanor has fallen, he sends another general, Bacchides, along with the would-be high priest Alcimus, to try again. This isn't quite as large of an army, something like 20,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry. But Judas's forces are also severely diminished. He's only got 3,000 of his best men with him. And when those 3,000 see the vast Seleucid army, they are absolutely terrified. During the night, all of Judas's soldiers slink off, except for 800 men. When Judas awakes and sees his fighters have deserted him, he is crushed. It absolutely destroys his soul. Nevertheless, he gets up and encourages his remaining 800 men to go with him into battle against that army of 22,000. They try to talk him out of it. They try to get him to retreat until they can raise reinforcements. But Judas is done. 
the desertion of his men has ripped the heart out of him. He says, far be it from us to run from them. If it is time for us to die, so be it. But let us die bravely. And so the battle is enjoined. Bacchides splits his forces in two and comes at Judas and his men from two sides. The mighty Jewish warriors blow their trumpets and fight fiercely. But Bacchides overpowers them. Judas is killed and the remaining soldiers flee. Afterwards, Judas is buried in the tomb of his ancestors at Moda'in. And all of Israel mourns him, saying, How the mighty has fallen, the Savior of Israel. After Judas' death, all the renegade Jews start coming out of the woodwork. Bacchides chooses godless men and puts them in positions of authority. He searches out any who supported the Maccabees and tortures and kills them. First Maccabees 9.27 says, there was great distress in Israel, such as had not been seen since the prophets ceased to appear among them. Finally, a secret meeting is held with the remaining friends of Judas and his brother Jonathan. They urge Jonathan to become their ruler and fight Bacchides. When Bacchides hears this, he calls out a manhunt. Jonathan and his brother Simon and all who are with them hide in the desert of Tekoa. But Bacchides finds out where they are, and he and his army cross the Jordan in pursuit. Quickly, Jonathan sends his brother John to beg the Nabataeans, Arabs who live in the Negev desert, to safeguard all their belongings and stores. The Nabataeans have been their friends, but one of the Nabataean families, the Jambres, Go rogue. They kill John and seize all the belongings and stores he has with him. Hearing this, Jonathan and his brother Simon take a bloody revenge on the Jambri family by ambushing them at a wedding. And then they turn to face the army of Bacchides. Urging his men to cry out to heaven for deliverance, Jonathan and his men plunge into battle on the shores of the Jordan River. But Jonathan cannot get the upper hand. Jonathan and his men leap into the river and swim to the other side to escape. Victorious, Bacchides returns to Jerusalem, where he fortifies many cities as well as building up the citadel again. Bacchides is, of course, the enemy of the Jews politically. But Alcimus, who is with him, is the enemy of the Jews religiously. As I noted, my suspicion is that Alcimus must have been one of the renegade priests serving in the temple at Samaria. And Alcimus makes it his mission to destroy the inner holy part of the temple. But just as he begins, he has a stroke and is paralyzed and unable to speak. He dies in great agony. After Alcimus's death, Bacchides returns to Antioch, leaving all those garrisons behind to keep an eye on Palestine. And the Jews are left relatively undisturbed for about two years. But it doesn't last. 
Some of the renegade Jews go to Antioch to consult with Bacchides and convince him to come back and destroy Jonathan and his men. This time, Jonathan and his brother Simon crush Bacchides. In anger, Bacchides turns on the renegade Jews who talked him into this ill-fated mission and kills many of them before he leaves and goes back to Antioch. Jonathan then sends envoys to Antioch, who are able to negotiate a peace deal with Bacchides and even obtain the release of some of the captives being held there. Jonathan himself settles in Michmash, just a few miles north of Jerusalem, where he functions as a judge for the people. From there, he continues his campaign to push the godless from the land. Everything is fine until King Demetrius is threatened by a guy claiming to be Antiochus IV's other son. He's not really. The text doesn't tell you this, but historically, we know that this guy is actually unrelated and his real name is Alexander Ballas. In the text, he goes by the throne name of Alexander Epiphanes. Alexander lands at Ptolemais and declares himself king. King Demetrius in Antioch assembles a large army, dashes off a letter to Jonathan asking for help and giving Jonathan the authority to recruit troops. As a gesture of goodwill, he also orders the soldiers of the garrison in the citadel in Jerusalem to release all the hostages they've been holding. Meanwhile, the would-be king Alexander hears that King Demetrius is trying to strike an alliance with Jonathan. Now, Alexander has heard of the Maccabees' formidable bravery and success, so he writes his own letter to Jonathan, appointing him high priest and making him, quote, king's friend. Jonathan accepts King Alexander's offer and becomes high priest and begins recruiting and arming troops. Well, King Demetrius has to up his ante. He sends a second letter to Jonathan, promising gifts, tax exemptions, elimination of the annual tributes, release of control of the citadel, and the release of all captives held in any part of the Seleucid Empire. The Jews are to be allowed all their festivals and Sabbaths and are to be allowed to enter the Seleucid military. Up to this point, they were considered too treacherous to be allowed in the military. Furthermore, the Jews enlisting in the Seleucid military would have commanders from their own ranks. But wait, there's more. The lands in Samaria and Galilee that the Seleucids have taken from Judas are to be given back and the Jews are to be allowed to live under their own laws and to be governed by the high priest. And there's more, the city of Ptolemais, where King Alexander has set up his rival government at the moment, is to be given to the temple as a gift and a source of revenue, and to be supplemented by 15,000 shekels of silver from the king's own treasury. The treasury is also to bear the entire cost of repairing and restoring the temple and the walls and the fortifications around Jerusalem. Well, that's a pretty amazing offer. But Jonathan and the people turn King Demetrius down flat. 
because they remember all the wrongs Demetrius has done to them and they do not trust him. The battle lines are drawn with Jonathan and his fighters on the side of King Alexander. When the battle is engaged, Demetrius is routed and killed. His son, Demetrius II, goes into exile. Alexander Epiphanes ascends to the Seleucid throne. Immediately, he sends envoys to Ptolemy, king of Egypt, inviting him to become his ally and proposing marriage to Ptolemy's daughter. Ptolemy accepts the offer, and he and his daughter Cleopatra set out for Ptolemaeus. There, Cleopatra and Alexander Epiphanes are married with great pomp and circumstance. Jonathan is summoned, and he arrives to meet the two kings with great pomp and circumstance of his own. He brings many gifts and much gold and silver that he gives not only to the two kings, but also to the, quote, king's friends. The renegade Jews who are present try to raise accusations against Jonathan, but King Alexander pays them no mind. The king clothes Jonathan in purple and seats him at his own side and issues a decree that no one is to bring charges against Jonathan anymore. That definitely shuts up the naysayers, and Jonathan returns to Jerusalem in peace and gladness. Then trouble rears its head again. This time, it is Demetrius II who has been in exile in Crete. Demetrius II comes from Crete and claims the Seleucid throne, so King Alexander has to hurry back to Antioch. Meanwhile, the newly arrived Demetrius II appoints a man named Apollonius as governor of Qualesaria and declares war on Jonathan. Apollonius marches with a large force towards Yavna. This is a this city is a big deal city in the history of the Jews. It's also called Jamnia or Iamnia. I will call it Yavna throughout. Quickly, Jonathan and his brother Simon gather an opposing force of 10,000 men and march to the fortified city of Joppa. But the Seleucid garrison at Joppa closes the gates of the city against them. Jonathan and his Simon attack Joppa, and the people of Joppa fear that their city will be destroyed, so the people open the gates to Jonathan. When Apollonius hears Jonathan has taken Joppa, he marches out with a large force, including 3,000 cavalry. But he pretends he's going past Joppa, and he stops at Azotus, which is the Greek name for that old Philistine city you're familiar with, the city of Ashdod. Jonathan is drawn into the trap. Jonathan attacks Apollonius at Azotus, not realizing that Apollonius has left a force of a thousand cavalry behind him. Jonathan is surrounded, but he and his foot soldiers fight so fiercely, the enemy cavalry begin to tire. Simon is able to bring his forces to bear as well, and Apollonius's troops flee. Jonathan burns and plunders Azotus and the temple of their idol, 
before returning triumphantly to Jerusalem. When King Alexander hears of these exploits, he's greatly impressed and sends Jonathan the coveted golden buckle, an honor normally only given to the king's own kinsmen. So at this point, there are still two kings vying for the Seleucid throne, Demetrius II and Alexander. Jonathan is allied with Alexander. Unfortunately, King Alexander is called away to quell a revolt, a revolt in Cilicia. Ptolemy of Egypt, the pharaoh whose daughter Cleopatra is married to Alexander, sees an opportunity. He betrays his son-in-law Alexander and plots to take Alexander's kingdom. Ptolemy marches north, telling everyone he's coming peace. But in reality, he leaves a garrison of his own soldiers in each town he passes. When he gets to Azotus, he sees the destruction wrought by Jonathan, so he knows Jonathan is a formidable force. Jonathan comes out with pomp to meet Ptolemy at Joppa, and there they parley. Jonathan even accompanies Ptolemy a short way. And with this ruse of peace, Ptolemy is able to take control of the coastal city. Then Ptolemy sends envoys to Demetrius II and promises that if Demetrius will help him, he will take his daughter Cleopatra away from Alexander and give her to Demetrius instead. And that sounds great to Demetrius. And so it is done. Ptolemy marches right into Antioch, seizes the Seleucid crown, and gives his married daughter Cleopatra to Demetrius II. While Alexander, over in Cilicia, hears of this and comes right back to fight for his throne and presumably his wife, but Ptolemy is too strong for him. Alexander is forced to flee into Arabia, where he ends up being beheaded. Ptolemy is flying high, that is, for three whole days. Then he dies suddenly. I'm thinking he must have been murdered by Demetrius II somehow, because Ptolemy's troops are simultaneously killed in the various strongholds where they'd been stationed on Ptolemy's march north. Demetrius II claims the Seleucid throne for himself. This is not good news for Jonathan. He's backed the wrong horse. First, he backed Alexander and then Ptolemy, and he snubbed Demetrius in doing so. Jonathan's got to make some strategic decisions here. He decides that the first order of business is to take the citadel south of the temple. He does not need enemies inside the walls of Jerusalem, right? Of course, the renegade Jews take word of this to Demetrius in Antioch, and Demetrius sets out for Ptolemaeus and sends word to Jonathan to stop the attack on the citadel and to meet him in Ptolemaeus. Well, Jonathan knows better than to stop the attack on the citadel, and he also knows he's walking into a trap if he goes to Ptolemaeus. But it's the only chance he's got of settling this whole thing diplomatically. So despite the danger, he goes to meet Demetrius at Ptolemaeus bringing silver and gold and many gifts. 
it is a sign of Jonathan's military strength and reputation that he ends up being able to win the favor of Demetrius. Demetrius ends up confirming Jonathan as high priest and bestowing on him many honors, including being named not, not just a king's friend, but one of the king's chief friends. Jonathan promises Demetrius 300 talents in exchange for freeing Judea and Samaria from the annual tribute. And so Demetrius writes a letter of treaty, giving the Jews Judea and parts of Samaria, all the parts that are actually bordering on Judea. Tributes are canceled and the land is finally at peace. Now that the land is at peace though, King Demetrius has no need for mercenaries for those guys he'd hired to fight Jonathan. So he fires them all. And that does not go over well with the mercenaries. Remember when Ptolemy and Demetrius defeated Alexander and Alexander had fled to Arabia where he was caught and beheaded? Well, apparently Alexander still has a young son living in Arabia. So one of the mercenaries that King Demetrius fires, a man named Trypho, goes to the Arab who is raising Alexander's son, Antiochus, and tries to convince the Arabs to help him overthrow Demetrius and put young Antiochus on the throne. Well, Demetrius is in a weak position since he's fired all his mercenaries. So when Jonathan asks Demetrius to withdraw his remaining troops from the citadel, please, Demetrius agrees to do that if Jonathan will send troops to Antioch to help him fight off Trypho. Jonathan, of course, immediately sends 3,000 troops. I mean, these guys have done a peace treaty together. This is to Demetrius's great relief. However, the king's problems are much bigger than he realized. The entire city rises up in revolt against Demetrius. 120,000 people riot and try to kill him. Demetrius flees the palace, but with the help of Jonathan's fighters, he finally regains control of the city. The people, seeing they are defeated, throw down their arms and beg the king to make the Jews stop fighting them. And so the Judean warriors return home victorious and laden with spoils. Of course, King Demetrius doesn't change his spots. He's always been treacherous. And that's why Jonathan didn't trust him in the first place. As soon as he's safe, Demetrius reneges on all his big promises. It's right about here that Trypho arrives from Arabia with Alexander's son Antiochus in tow and an army behind him. Without Jonathan's troops there to help him, Demetrius is defeated, but not killed and the young Antiochus becomes king. Antiochus writes to Jonathan, confirming him as high priest and as one of the, quote, king's friends. He sends Jonathan gifts and grants him the right to drink from golden vessels, to wear purple, and to wear that golden buckle. And he appoints Simon, Jonathan's brother, as governor over the coastlands from Tyre to Egypt. Palestine, you know, never does seem to be at peace, though. There are continual battles and skirmishes with various factions, but Jonathan and Simon hang on through it all. 
Jonathan, now ensconced as high priest and leader of Judea, decides it's time to renew the friendship with the Romans. He sends envoys to the Roman Senate and to the Spartans with copies of the old alliance between the Jews and the Romans. Around this same time, Jonathan hears that Trypho and his disgruntled mercenaries are coming to wage war on him now that they've overthrown Demetrius. Jonathan marches north to Hamath to prevent Trypho's army from invading Judea. Well, Trypho is counting on a surprise attack by night, but Jonathan's spies warn him of Trypho's plan. And when Trypho's troops realize they no longer have the element of surprise, they know they're, they're done. So they light fires in their camp, so it'll look as if someone is there that night, and they flee before the sun comes up. When the day dawns and Jonathan realizes that the enemy camp is empty, he pursues Trypho and his troops, but they've got too much of a head start and he can't catch up with them. So Jonathan returns to Jerusalem and makes plans to strengthen its fortifications. He also works to build a high wall between the citadel and the city so that the Seleucid garrison is cut off from getting supplies from the city. This is a brilliant strategic tactic. They've never been able to dig those Seleucids out of that citadel, but now they're, they are going to basically try to starve them out. Trypho, of course, is not happy just being the force behind young King Antiochus. Trypho wants to be king of the Seleucid Empire himself, but he's afraid if he tries to assassinate Antiochus, with whom Jonathan has a relationship and treaty and all this stuff, Jonathan will defend Antiochus. So Trypho figures he's got to get rid of Jonathan first. So Trypho marches out to make war on Jonathan and kill him. But Jonathan meets him at Beit Shean with an even larger army. Trypho knows he's got no chance at that point, so he pretends to be Jonathan's friend. He's just coming as a friend and gives him all sorts of honors. And then he says, oh, why drag all these people around with us when you and I are not at war? Send everyone home except a few good men and let's go to Ptolemaeus together so I can hand it and some of the other strongholds over to you. And then I'm just going to I'm going to go back home to Antioch. Well, Jonathan does not realize this is a trick. He sends all but a thousand of his troops away. And as soon as he enters Ptolemaeus with Trypho, the people of Ptolemaeus close around him and take him captive. They kill Jonathan's men and they hold Jonathan prisoner. Trypho sends troops and cavalry to wipe out Jonathan's remaining soldiers elsewhere in the land, but they meet with such stiff resistance that they give up and turn back for Antioch, and everyone is afraid of what will happen next. Simon, Jonathan's brother, is of course ready to step into Jonathan's shoes. Simon was the brother their father, Mattathias, had appointed so long ago as head of the family. He's a seasoned warrior by now, but he's also an extremely gifted and wise leader. He encourages the people to take heart, reminding them of all the Maccabees have done. 
he pledges to fight just as hard as his brothers before him. And so the people acclaim Simon as their new leader, and Simon prepares for war. Trifo marches out to invade Judah, taking Jonathan with him as captain. And when he meets Simon's encampment, he sends Simon an envoy saying, we are detaining Jonathan because he owes money to the royal treasury. If you send us a hundred talents of silver and two of his sons as hostages to ensure he does not revolt against us, we will release him. Well, Simon knows Trifo cannot be trusted, but he's between a rock and a hard place. If he doesn't at least try to win Jonathan's release, diplomatically, you know, by complying with Trifo's demands, the people will think he hasn't done everything possible to avoid war. So Simon sends the money and sends two of Jonathan's sons. But just as he feared, Trifo takes it all and still does not release Jonathan. Trifo and his army circle around towards Adora, a town several miles south of Jerusalem, trying to find a way into Judah to attack it. But everywhere they go, Simon's army marches in parallel, a moving barrier preventing invasion. Meanwhile, the Seleucid garrison in the citadel at Jerusalem is beginning to run out of food. They start sending urgent messages to Trifo. And Trifo gathers a cavalry force to attack, but that night there is a heavy snowfall and the cavalry are useless. God to the rescue again. Frustrated, Trifo abandons the garrison to starvation, marches to Gilead, kills Jonathan, and goes back to Antioch. Simon gathers his brother's remains and takes him back and buries him in the family tomb at Moda'in. And all of Israel mourns him greatly. It's now 142 BCE. Now that Jonathan is dead, Trypho wastes no time in killing young King Antiochus and declaring himself king of the Seleucid Empire. But don't forget King Demetrius. He still has a claim to the throne. Trypho certainly has the upper hand, but King Demetrius fights back. Simon has to choose sides. During a pause in the fighting, he sends a gold crown and a palm branch of peace to King Demetrius. Demetrius accepts these gifts and agrees to be Simon's ally. First Macca Maccabees 13.41 says that it is during the rule of Simon that the yoke of the Seleucids will be removed from Israel. And Israel actually begins dating their years from the first year of Simon, the high priest, commander, and leader of the Jews. Simon is able to conquer all the remaining strongholds of the Seleucids, expelling them and cleansing the cities of idols. The remaining soldiers in the citadel begin to perish from starvation. And when they sue for peace, Simon expels them as well, and takes the citadel, finally. Finally, on the 23rd day of the second month, the Jews enter the citadel with a parade of praise and palm branches, singing and instruments, a great day of celebration for finally, 
finally their enemies have been crushed and completely removed from their land. On this day in 141 BCE, the Jews finally have their nation back. The next year, King Demetrius regroups and marches into Medea to get help so he can depose Trypho. Well, the Medes do not take well to the fact that Demetrius is marching into their land with an army. They send their own army to meet Demetrius. They capture him and hold him prisoner, leaving Trypho as sole ruler in Antioch. And so, all the days of Simon's rule, Israel is at peace. He builds a harbor at Joppa, which opens up sea trade. He rules well, helping the humble and applying the law justly. And Israel rejoices. When Rome and Sparta hear that Jonathan has died and that Simon now rules, they send bronze tablets reaffirming their friendship. And Simon responds by sending a huge golden shield to Rome to confirm the alliance. The people declare that Simon and his sons after him will be their high priest and ruler forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise. It's now 138 BCE. King Demetrius has a brother named Antiochus VII Sidetes, who is in exile. Antiochus VII sends a letter to Simon explaining that he's gathering a force to retake his throne from Trypho. And he warns Simon that he will be landing in the country for this purpose. He grants Simon in advance all the tax relief and exemptions the kings before him had given. When Antiochus VII invades, Trypho's troops desert him. Trypho himself escapes to a city named Dor, which is by the sea. Antiochus VII surrounds Dor with 120,000 troops and 8,000 cavalry, as well as a naval blockade. No one is allowed to enter or leave Dor. Simon helps by sending 2,000 handpicked troops, plus silver and gold and military equipment. But Antiochus VII, realizing he no longer needs Simon's help in conquering Trypho, who's now on his own, Antiochus refuses Simon's help and breaks all his former agreements. Instead, Antiochus sends word to Simon that Joppa, the citadel, and other cities outside of the traditional borders of Judea belong to him, and that Simon must not only hand them over, but he must pay a thousand talents of silver for reparations and for tribute. But Simon tells the envoy, we have not taken anything but what is our rightful inheritance. We will not give any of our territory back. However, we will give you a hundred talents for Joppa and Gazara. Well, the envoy leaves in anger and returns to the king, reporting what Simon has said and also reporting Simon's great riches. Antiochus VII is enraged, but just then, Trypho escapes from Dor. So Antiochus VII sends one of his generals, a man named Syndabius, with infantry and cavalry to retake Judea, while Antiochus takes the rest of the forces and pursues Trypho. 
When Simon hears that General Sendavius is moving against him, he calls his two eldest sons, Judas and John, and says to them, I and my brothers have fought bravely, and Israel has prospered under our hands, but I am old. You two will have to be the ones to fight for our nation now. So John takes 20,000 troops, including his brother Judas, and marches out against General Sendavius. He makes camp at Modain, his own ancestral hometown. Early the next morning, they march into the plain, where a large force of infantry and cavalry is coming to meet them. A stream runs between the two armies. John seeing, sees that his soldiers are afraid to cross the stream, so he goes into the water first, and the rest of his troops are emboldened to follow. Once across, the battle is joined, and General Sendavius and his forces are routed. Judas is wounded, but John is able to pursue Sendavius as far as Kedron and then return to Judah safely. At about this same time, a man named Ptolemy, not a pharaoh, this is just a guy named Ptolemy, has been appointed governor over the plain of Jericho. He happens to be one of Simon's sons-in-law. Well, this man Ptolemy makes plans to overthrow Simon and his sons and take control of Judea himself. So when Simon and his, two of his sons come for a family visit, Ptolemy gets them drunk and then kills them. Then Ptolemy writes letters to Antiochus VII informing him of these things and asking him to make Ptolemy himself ruler of Judea. He simultaneously sends troops to assassinate John and he sends bribes to the various captains so they will switch allegiance. But news of the coup reaches John before the assassins do. Greatly shocked that his brother-in-law has murdered his father and brothers. John nevertheless rallies men who help him capture and kill the assassins. And here the story of the Maccabees ends. The world continues in this fashion with wars and battles and kings murdering kings. The Seleucids weaken steadily until they're no longer a threat to Rome. By the middle of the first century BCE, the Romans no longer have need of an alliance with the Maccabees. The Maccabees, also known as the Hasmonean dynasty, continue serving as high priests in Jerusalem. They are serving there when the Romans under General Pompey finally do invade Palestine and claim it as their own in 63 BCE. The last Hasmonean high priest is executed by Mark Anthony in 37 BCE. And Herod the Great is made puppet king and tetrarch of the four provinces of Judah. Herod is beholden to Rome, and Herod kills every last male of the Hasmonean line. And after that, the high priests serve at Herod's pleasure. We have finished the Apocrypha. We are now to the time of Jesus. This then is where we will pick the story up when we begin the New Testament in September. <laughs>
And so I don't really have any questions or anything in particular to discuss. It's open floor. You know, hear, hearing this full history and knowing what's going on today in the Middle East, Israel has hardly ever been a peaceful country. It has like, always <laughs> been, yeah, it has always been um, viewed with suspicion by its neighbors and constantly at war, which yeah. is really fascinating to me. Yeah. It, it's, it even makes it more weird that people don't include the apocrypha because it explains so much as to why that area of the world is still the way it is. It's just always been that way. Yeah, and it, it also explains to me, uh, it helps me understand better the world that Jesus entered into and what the Romans might have been upset about. It's like it gives you a whole new perspective on Herod and the Romans and and the high priest, the Sanhedrin and all that. It gives you a lot better perspective on what's at risk and what the history is and what these relationships are. Um Can you you give us a real quick summary of what happened between 65 BCE and when Jesus uh, was born? Yes. And that's how we will open our New Testament class. I will will back up just a few years um, to just kind of let you know what happened to that, the, the tail end of the Hasmonean dynasty, because they end up becoming corrupt themselves. And, um, and there's intrigue and people killing people and all kinds of stuff, but we'll just like skim over that last bit. But just so you know how Herod himself actually fits into that, because he marries one of the Hasmonean princesses. He marries Mary Amney, the love of his life. He loves this woman. Um, and she is descended from the Hasmoneans, even as he is killing off all of her male relatives. Um, and, uh, it, I will, you know, kind of explain to you the, pol- the, po- mainly the politics around Herod the Great, because that's the key part as we go into, into the New Testament. Um, and I, you know, and I'd like some feedback from you all. I'm just kind of mulling all this over in my head as to how to approach the New Testament and what to do. This is, um, an overview course, huh? you can laugh now, but it is. And um, <laughs> it really is an overview. And, um, and so I'm, I'm, I don't know how deeply to dive into the um, New Testament. I'm, I'm thinking that what I will do is tell you the synoptic gospels. Those are the three that tell the story of Jesus's life. Um, And just basically pull all of Jesus's life into a story and just kind of meld those together and explain, you know, why I think the chronology might be what it is and, and why some of them have things in different orders, that kind of stuff will be the Jesus life. 
And the things he said, well, look at the things Jesus said and kind of mull those over. And we'll see that Jesus is a product of this very culture. He has been raised thinking many of these things um, that, that we have seen in the evolution of what Jews think during these times. And we'll begin to look at that. Um, I was just laying in bed last night thinking about how primordial, there's something primordial about God. Something that is deep and unchanging and that it would be entirely appropriate that the symbol that he chooses for himself is an unhewn stone. Is a what? Un unhewn stone, uncut okay. stone, uncut stone. That is the symbol God chose. And I, I want to, and Jesus is like 100% plugged into that, right? But Jesus is, mm-hmm. as a man is also part of his culture. And so I want, we'll, you know, begin to look at the New Testament and Jesus and Jesus through these kind of dual lenses, kind of looking at that and how at the yin and the yang of, of Jesus's ministry. And then what I'm thinking about doing is going through the letters. Well, and we'll pick up John, any bits of John, the gospel of John that we didn't cover in Jesus's life. We'll talk about the theology that John presents of Jesus. And then we'll talk about the theology that Paul develops of Jesus. And we'll do that by looking at his letters in chronological order. So we can see the progression of Paul in his thinking, because Paul doesn't always land in the same place. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and we'll talk about the culture and then, you know, what's going on in the various places that he's building churches. And then we'll kind of run through some of the other letters that are less important, less, they're, they're kind of the second Maccabees versions of the New Testament, you know, where there, there's a little more suspect material in them. The authors are more suspect. And we'll probably spend a class or two in Hebrews and, a, and we'll spend a couple of classes, two or three classes at least in Revelation. Um, so if that sounds good, that's the approach that I'll take. It won't be like I know um, Lumar has been in my Mark class. So has Julia. Um, and that we won't do the Mark class. We'll, you know, I'll talk about Mark and how he's structured his story, but it'll basically be walking through that chiasm. It won't be a deep dive into it like we do in the Mark class. So just don't want to be disappointed. I have a question for you, Gail, about, um, about your approach and, I can't wait. <laughs> I'm really interested, by the way, your comment about Mark as a chiasm. I'm like, oh, that's going to be interesting. Oh, that's um, a good class. <laughs> um, when you do talk about oh, the synop- in it too. Mm-hmm. When you when you do talk about the synoptic gospels kind of holistically, will you also because culture's been so important, will you also talk about why each of those three gospel writers um, why they take the particular approach that that writer took, you know, who their audience was and that sort of thing. So yeah. we get a sense of the cultural influences there also. Yes. We will look at okay. their agenda and their context. Got it. Cool. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. 
to the best that I can, you know, and I feel like it's this huge minefield out there. <laughs> I feel like there are so many places I could step and things could just blow up, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm, and I didn't have, I, I, I had that feeling the first time I taught revelation and I'm much more comfortable with the revelation. Now I just trusted God through the whole thing and it well, totally worked so, out. <laughs> so I think this is a safe place for you to take the minefield risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think that we, we trust you to do that. Yeah. Um, and I think that those minefield risks are worth taking. Mm-hmm. 